coming to you from Los Angeles with no audience. It's an old-fashioned episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, hello, my friends. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, it's been a while since I've done a normal Ask Science Mike episode, and this one's not like completely normal. Uh, this is a patron episode, so I've asked my patrons on Patreon to ask questions uh, for this week's show, and they did. In fact, they asked so many that I can't possibly do this in one show. It will be hours and hours long. So I think what I'll do instead this week uh, for your Thanksgiving uh, is I will just record um, like an episode a day until they're done. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be done uh, by Wednesday. So maybe three episodes this week, which is really fun because holiday weeks have my lowest download numbers, which is really common in the podcast world. So I'm just going to do as many questions off the top of my head as I can and um, answering off the top of my head so these aren't pre uh researched answers. It's like a live episode in that these are not fact fact checked like a normal episode of Ask Science Mike is. And uh, we'll, we'll go for, I don't know, 45 minutes and see how many of these questions we can cover. Um, real quick, I want to let you know a couple things. One, the paperback for Finding God in the Waves is out and uh, and selling really well. So I, I can tell that uh, 14 bucks or 10 bucks is a much better price point for you all than the hardback was. Uh, and then uh, I've got a few events on the calendar in the next year. So let's talk about my events in February. February 7th, I'll be in Orange County, excuse me, yeah, Orange, California for an Ask Science Mike Live. And then February 10th, I'll be in Cincinnati, Ohio for Ask Science Mike Live. And then February 23rd, I'll be at a Revive 2018 in San Diego. So a lot of local stuff coming up. Um, so I'd love to see you at any of those. This Sunday, by the way, I'll be preaching at the uh, First United Methodist Church in Costa Mesa. My friend Sarah Heath Church, so if you're in Costa Mesa, I'd love to see you this Sunday. And uh, that's it. If you've been thinking about having me come to your college or your church, or your conference in 2018, uh, don't wait anymore. Uh, my calendar is filling up really fast next year. Um, so if you're interested, just go to AskScienceMike.com, click on the Speaking tab in the menu, uh, and that will take you to Chafee Management, my booking company, who can work something out with you about getting me in your town, at your college, your conference, your church, wherever you'd like me to speak. I do enjoy going and seeing you all face-to-face -face much more than I enjoy sitting alone in my studio and recording. I always have to pretend I have more energy than I do because I can feel so lonely. Also, I want to apologize for the irregular schedule. When I go on tour, I'm finding that uh, I have less mental stamina <laughs> than I'm used to uh, and that I often get plagued with these migraines once I get home. So it's like my body realizes I can rest and then it rests with a vengeance and doesn't let me work. So what do you say? Let's answer some questions. 
Uh, Josh on Patreon said, if we end up establishing a permanent Mars colony, what can communication look like between Earthlings and Martians? Martians. <laughs> Martians is what's written, not Martians. Will it eventually just be like people in different countries talking to each other on the same internet or FaceTiming and texting each other or something more complicated and separate? Uh, Josh, it would definitely be something more complicated and separate. Here's why. Mars is really far away. So let's imagine there was a moon base for a second. The moon's a lot closer to the Earth than Mars is. Uh, but the moon has uh, a second or more uh, distance from the Earth at light speed, so a light second. Um, and that means, best case, for you to type google.com and press return and some information to go down to the Earth, to Google servers on Earth, and then go back to the moon, round trip is going to be more than two seconds. And on normal internet connections in the world today, uh, that process happens in fractions of one second. It happens in milliseconds is what we measure ping time in typically. And, uh, oh gosh, today with broadband internet, ping times can be you know less than 10 milliseconds. But anything less than 80 is pretty good. Um, and so this, this, this increasing ping time means it takes a lot of time for your computer to request data and for it to get back. You would also imagine that all communication would happen via satellites or communication dishes, and you'd have much more limited bandwidth uh, in between the Earth and the Moon. Um, so when we see that today, uh, people in rural areas on Earth right now often use satellite internet connections to uh, connect to the internet. And because they have to send their information, you know, thousands of miles above the Earth's surface. If I remember correctly, it's it uh, it's like 18,000 miles. Excuse me while I, I Google that. Geosynchronous orbit. Geosynchronous orbit uh, at the equator is 26,000 miles. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Middle Earth orbit is 18,000. So uh, that's a long way, 26,000 miles. And because of that, the ping times, the latency on the internet connection goes up a lot, then the internet's just a lot less usable. And if you look at something like uh, Australia, um, which is not in space, <laughs> um, they all share a, a small amount of fiber compared to their population to connect to the rest of the internet. And so they have very low bandwidth caps on their internet connections. They're not allowed to use very much data. Okay? So now imagine the complications of, of Australia or the moon and now have a, a round-trip ping time that is 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, in a really good time of year, maybe 17 in a, in a bad time of year, more than 20. That's not possible. The 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 uh, protocols that power the internet just aren't designed for that kind of latency. So we'd have to create some kind of specialized protocol uh, for deep space packet communication, um, and it would be extremely slow. Uh, so it would make a lot more sense to build a small local internet on Mars 
where most of your browsing is local. You know, you go to google.mars. <laughs> you go to wikipedia.mars. You go to netflix.mars. And all of those companies, hopefully if we had a Mars colony, would have servers on Mars. It would actually make more sense. It'd be faster and more efficient to load up physical media with, you know, caches of Google's data stores, a full copy of Wikipedia, Netflix movies, and send them on rockets with the colonists uh, than it would be to stream or transmit through deep space. Uh, so it would be it would be incredibly complicated. You basically have two separate internets that synced periodically, and that syncing process, every packet sent between the Earth and Mars would be very expensive. Uh, now, I could be completely wrong, but I do have a background in network design and a deep interest in deep space. So I think that's probably a, a decent answer. So thank you. Okay, now Joel has a question. Why do you think people reportedly live to be so old before the flood? And why was that the cutoff? I think people were reported to live such a long time before the flood because that's a mythological account. It, it contains historical elements. Uh, but if you look at the ages of people in the Old Testament, uh, they tend to use significant digits indicating divinity or blessing. Um, and they leave out a lot of other digits. And um, I think that's it. I think it's a, a storytelling mechanism that doesn't translate well into modern society. So by asking that question, Joel, I assume you have a relationship with the Bible where you read it maybe more literally than I do, and that that's fine. Um, but from my account, the Bible is uh, written by people about their experiences with God. And because of that, uh, it's not historically or scientifically authoritative, which it doesn't need to be. That'd be a waste of what the Bible is good for. What the Bible is great at is helping us understand a common struggle uh, to know and to serve God over the span of history. Um, if you'd like to know more about that kind of reading the Bible, I would recommend a book called um, The Bible Tells Me So by Dr. Peter Enns. Okay, and Rachel asks, when did American Christianity become so aligned with the Republican Party? I'm, assume it, I'm assuming it hasn't always been the way it is today. Rachel, that's a great assumption. Um, one thing Americans are terrible at is awareness of world or even American history. Uh, especially in Protestant circles, we tend to project our present assumptions and relationships back onto the past. Uh, but it's not all that controversial that there were two major movements in uh, the GOP's current stranglehold on white Christians. Emphasis on white Christians. We don't want to take the experiences of the white church and make that represent the entire church in America, especially because the white church is shrinking and churches of color are growing. When we talk about the millennial exodus from church, for example, we are largely discussing a white phenomenon. Millennials of color are not leaving their churches as much as white millennials. There's two movements that I can remember 
that created the current alignment. One is the establishment of the moral majority, uh, who Jerry Falwell was the founder of. It started in 1979. And uh, that was basically a call for Christians to be politically active. This caused significant movement on issues uh, like abortion, which evangelicals once thought of as a Catholic issue, and um, turned conservative evangelicals into one of the most reliable, organized voting blocs in the country, which the Republicans took advantage of at the same time through something called the Southern Strategy. And that literally took the South from being... uh, mainly Democratic to primarily Republican. Um, And many historians say that was by using uh, racist language and imagery. So the Democrats became too associated with the Civil Rights Movement, and the Republicans saw votes up for grabs, and they took them. And that's why uh, the Republican Party is not aligned with Christianity in general, but white American Christianity in particular, and I can't wait to hear emails about that one. (laughs) Hannah asks, what are your thoughts on CRISPR-Cas9 and its implications for biology and bioethics? Hannah, I'm totally excited about CRISPR-Cas9. For those of you who don't know, this has been big news in the biological sciences and medicine CRISPR and Cas9 are two molecules that, used in conjunction, allow us to cheaply and reliably edit DNA. And ooh, that sounds spooky, I know. But if it works, if it works consistently and it's durable, this could open completely new treatments for genetic disorders. This could let us address, uh, create powerful treatments for cancer, uh, for sure, Um, but any any disease that has a genetic component could be addressed with CRISPR-Cas9. So really excited to see it develop. The second part, bioethics. Obviously, I'm as concerned as anyone else uh, about what could happen to CRISPR-Cas9 if it was combined with market forces. Um, So I don't want CRISPR-Cas9 therapies to only be available to wealthy people. And I I am reticent to see people use CRISPR-Cas9 as part of the reproduction process uh, to, you know, pick eye colors. And I want want a really smart athletic child. Can we insert those genes? I think maybe then we are setting ourselves up for trouble, potentially. Um, But as a baseline, I think the technology is incredibly promising, and I can't wait to see it address human suffering in the world. Justin asks, how do spiral dynamics and the Enneagram interact? For example, how would a blue nine react differently from a red nine? Justin, I love the enthusiasm behind the question. I want to emphasize that both the Enneagram and spiral dynamics are models with which we interrogate um, personality and group dynamics respectively. And I don't think those models are meant to be mixed. Um, I think uh, doing so would take the models beyond what they were designed to do. Uh, The Enneagram is a pretty non-rigorous model. 
Um, it's it's a great shorthand for having conversations about personality, but it, its clinical applications are limited if they exist at all. Spiral dynamics is a little more rigorous, and it you know um, was used uh, by Nelson Mandela to work towards peace in Africa. So that's pretty impressive. But it's also based on some older assumptions and ideas uh, and and really could use uh, some updating. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily let Spiral Dynamics or the Enneagram interact at all. I would continue to use Spiral Dynamics to interrogate intergroup uh, and intergroup uh, conflicts and discussions. And I would allow the Enneagram to be a shorthand for describing personality. Philip asks, I'm hoping your science moniker extends somewhat into the soft sciences. Are there any resources that show a pure free market actually end up as beneficial as some of my more conservative friends say it would be? I've heard a claim that it could solve everything from income inequality to environmental concerns, and I'm not sure I believe that. Thanks. Uh, Well, Philip, um, my opinion is not any more qualified than your friend's opinions especially if I'm not researching these questions. Um, I would say um, there's economists that argue both of those positions, one that the free market solves everything, the other that uh, more regulation is better or more government involvement. And that exists on a spectrum from basically economic uh, anarchy (laughs) uh, all the way to communism or socialism. Um, I don't know. I know that in the world market today, if we look at the economies that are doing really well at uh, protecting the environment, at reducing income equality, at generating wealth, you see that the social democracies of Northern Europe are killing it compared to the rest of the world. Um, so just based on that, uh, I would lean more towards a government-involved model. Um, The reason being, um, free markets, I think, work great at first, but once someone grabs enough capital, once they get enough resources, they become a de facto government. They they have the ability suddenly to dictate policy and to eliminate competition. Uh, Think about how hard it, it, it was as McDonald's took over fast food in America to start a local restaurant. Think about how retailers have suffered in the age of Amazon and Walmart and how uh, job creation has kind of gone down with that. Walmart and Amazon don't need as many employees to get uh, goods to people as local retailers do. Uh, So net employment goes down. Uh, So all these things give us really troubling images of uh, unregulated markets. I can't think of... um, a country that has an extremely unregulated market that is, that is doing well economically. Uh, so that makes me kind of a social democracy guy. Hannah asks, does science offer an explanation for otherwise normal and healthy women like me who have absolutely no biological drive to reproduce? Yes, <laughs> absolutely science explains that. Um, 
you might think, oh, that makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective. Um, but for some reason, as uh, women specifically get more economic empowerment and education, they have fewer and fewer babies. And this is universal across cultures and civilizations. More educated, economically empowered women have fewer or indeed no children. Um, you would think, based on evolution, that kind of resource availability would lead to lots and lots and lots of children. Um, but it doesn't. It seems like uh, as resources become more plentiful, uh, human females place bigger bets on fewer children. Um, and so when resources are scarce, having lots of children is a way to try to ensure that some reach adulthood. Um, and that just appears to be the way uh, our species does uh, selection of the next generation. And uh, it's no big deal. I mean, I think our culture tries to guilt people and um, make them feel ashamed if they don't want to have children. And I don't think that's healthy or appropriate. Um, if you don't want to have children, don't have children. Um, and uh, don't let anyone tell you that evolution says otherwise. Sean asks, what is the biological need for parents? Why do some animals have one parent, i.e. the one that raises the young? And why do humans have two? Sean, uh, evolution tries different strategies uh, to achieve its goal, which is reproducing life, life that can persist and endure through changes in the environment. And so, uh, for example, there's R-collected and K-selected species, not collected, selected. And uh, those are just basically whether you're going to have uh, a lot of children or a few children. That's all that means. So our selected species um, have uh, lots of offspring and K-selected species have few offspring that they invest more resources in. Um, and then that comes with different uh, parenting strategies. Um, your higher investment strategy is going to be more likely to have that uh, double two-parent or uh, herd mentality in terms of uh, investing in children. And uh, the single parent model is going to be more common among uh, the exponential growth, lots of offspring idea. Of course, some animals don't have a, an active parent at all and uh, are born with enough instinct to try to make it on their own. Think of sea turtles. Sea turtles don't have an active parent uh, in their um growth from birth. So, um, and this speaks to the way that evolution, being a blind watchmaker, uh, operating without intention, but merely a set of rules, uh, isn't planning anything, but instead is a, a system that allows life to adapt to changes on this planet. Nick says, I have heard you mention that people are quite susceptible to suggestion. 
I have noticed also in myself and others the tendency to be contrarian. I'm a minister slash leader who has struggled mightily with contrarian people. Could you explain the relationship between these two social reactions and what I'm misunderstanding? Thanks. Um, I don't know there's a lot of interaction between them. Um, our suggestibility doesn't mean agreeability. Uh, what you're contrary and about could in fact be things that have been suggested to you through the environment uh, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, so think about advertisers. Why do advertisers like Coke spend so much money? Literally, the familiarity of seeing the name and the logo over and over and over and over again, that familiarity is a form of suggestibility that when you walk down the soda aisle and you see Coke and it's familiar, you grab Coke. Uh, politics works in a very similar way. Uh, the degree to which people can remember your name is a huge predictor for success at the ballot box. Um, so that's just, we're suggestible. Uh, I'm going to talk about that a lot in my next book, so I'm not going to dig much deeper right now. Uh, and then being contrarian is simply a part of how you establish your social identity. So everyone forms their beliefs by looking at uh, what those around them believe in their community. Um, and most people find their beliefs aligned with their community. Some people form their beliefs in opposition with their community. They're called nonconformists, but their beliefs are still formed through suggestibility and social identity. Uh, they just make every day opposite day, I guess. <laughs> David Page says, so the start of human consciousness, genetic mutation, divine intervention, or a really gradual process. Any other opinions out there? Tell us the story, Mike, please. <laughs> well, since you asked so nicely, I'll happily wade into an unsolved predicament in science and philosophy. <laughs> Here's the problem talking about consciousness. What the heck are you talking about? What do you mean by consciousness. Consciousness is one of those words that everyone uses, but no one agrees what it means. I find uh, Michio Kaku's ideas about consciousness to be extremely helpful. What is consciousness? The ability to build a model of the world and then react to it. That means a rock is not conscious. It doesn't have a model of the world. But in a very limited way, a thermostat is. Why? A thermostat knows the temperature and can respond to the temperature and then respond to the changes in the temperature brought by its own behavior. Your AC system is at a basic level consciousness or conscious in that definition. And then plants would be much more sophisticated because they have more loops, more feedback loops. Instead of just temperature, sunlight, sun direction, soil pH, soil nutrients, the presence of pests and predators that consume the plant, the chemical signals other plants send out in response to attack, all of these things, right? So at that level, consciousness happened pretty early as soon as organisms were able to build some model of reality and then just gradually adding more and more loops 
created more sophisticated consciousnesses like what we see in Homo sapiens, whose consciousness has to involve not only the temperature and uh, the sun direction, uh, but a complex map of the environment so we can move and find food and shelter and mates. Uh, and then because we're a social species, we have to model what other consciousnesses are thinking about us. And then we also incorporate the ability to contemplate time in our consciousness, which requires a brain with something like 86 billion neurons that we achieved gradually through evolution. Aaron asks, when I was a child, my parents told me to ignore anything that said the world was millions of years old, and like a good child that I was, I obeyed. Now, I believe in evolution. I find myself trying to play catch up to understand. Can you give a brief overview of evolution and or point me to helpful websites or books? Um, Aaron, I'd start with biologos.org. I like BioLogos because they're going to present evolution in a way that's not shocking or difficult for people of faith, especially Christians with a biblical background. So BioLogos is great. Uh, in terms of a brief overview, uh, well, remember evolution just means change. So everyone believes in evolution. Everyone agrees that evolution happens. Uh, you evolved to be able to get out of bed this morning and put on clothes. That was a change. That was evolution. The controversy is over Darwin's theory of evolution via natural selection. And evolution via natural selection is the idea that our genetic code mutates, creates a change in organisms that most of the time are benign, but sometimes are harmful or beneficial. And when they're harmful, those genes uh, reduce the chance of an organism reproducing, and when they're beneficial, they increase. And this is how natural selection works. More beneficial changes are more likely to make more copies of themselves over time. An odd thing, though, as the environment changes, an adaptation that was once beneficial can suddenly become harmful. So let's suppose that you had an organism that had a mutation that caused it to grow much larger and so it was able to fight off more predators. That's great until the climate changes and food becomes more scarce and suddenly this large body is too calorically expensive to maintain. Suddenly the smallest members of that species are the most fit for the environment. And that's what fittest means. It doesn't mean strongest or most aggressive or most powerful, but simply most timely to the environment the organism is in. And that, in a nutshell, is evolution via natural selection. All right, not bad. Uh, that's 30 minutes of uh, questions. Hopefully those answers were worthwhile, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow for another episode of Ask Science Mike. If the mix sounds funny on this episode... That's because I didn't send it to Greg. Greg will be angry with me, but I want him to have the week off with his family for Thanksgiving. So it's going to be old school this week as I record and edit these episodes of Ask Science Mike. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>